Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features pianist Lisa Kaplan of Eighth Blackbird. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Soundweavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and my delightful co-host today is the fantastical Dr. Adam Paul Cordell. You're fantastical today. We're, we're branching out <laughs> into new words. Excellent, excellent. Hi, Rosie, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing just dandy. Thank you very much for asking. So today we are super excited to have the amazing and wonderful 8th Blackbird with us today. 8th Blackbird has been hailed as one of the smartest, most dynamic ensembles on the planet by the Chicago Tribune. They have been going for well over two decades at this point, which is pretty gosh darn impressive for a chamber ensemble. But they started back in 1996 as a group of six entrepreneurial Oberlin conservatives students and they are now led under the leadership of founding member Lisa Kaplan who is their executive director and who we have in our zoom room with us today so hi Lisa thank you so much for joining us today hi Rosie and hi Adam what got you all together to begin with was it the was it a specific piece or was it just admiration for each other so it was actually the conductor of the contemporary music ensemble at Oberlin, Tim, mm. Tim Weiss, who is still there. And he, um, he is only like six years older than me, right? So you can imagine mm. like being a freshman and here's this like, you know, not even 25 year old conductor. Oh, goodness. Right, who's yeah. super talented, had this really infectious enthusiasm for playing contemporary music. And at the time, you know, this was, the 90s like i was in school and there was not like a prestige of playing in contemporary music ensembles at most conservatories yet oberlin was an exception and so mm -hmm. so tim you know tim was kind of he, he kind of handpicked the six of us the original members and and said you know do you guys want to play in this little kind of offshoot group from the contemporary music ensemble and and you know we wanted to because that was like the cool thing to do. Um, and I I think like for me personally the idea of playing music by living composers was not really a foreign concept because my piano teacher growing up is a composer himself and like he had studied with Hindemith at Yale and wow. you know so he was really yeah I know it's like a right 
but you know, so I had played some of his music when I was a, a student of his, you know, when I was in high school. And so I think it, it seemed really exciting to me to like continue to do that and to just play music that was being written now. Um, and I, I feel that that feeling of it being exciting to play music that's from our time has only, I've become even more impassioned about that, like in the past 20 years. Um, there's something about sort of like forging your own interpretation of a work that has never yet been performed that to me is just so exciting. It's also so nice that you can, so many living composers, you can actually talk to them and say, hey, by the way, did you mean to write this? Oh, you did? Are you sure? <laughs> exactly. You can't do that with Mozart. No, right. Yeah, you can't. I mean, and, and that's the beauty of it too. And and I think also just, you know, that you forge relationships with these people who write for you mm. and they maybe write for you again and they continue to write for you, you know, in a way that's part of also creating a community for yourself, which has been another huge part of this, you know, career that I have just loved. You know, it's, I've made so many loyal, lifelong, you know, kind of friends um, from collaborating and, uh, and it's just really beautiful. So when you look at the 8th Blackbird website, it seems as though the organization exists largely beyond the sextet that your listeners would think of when they hear the name 8th Blackbird. And you even describe the ensemble as the longest running initiative yeah. of the overall organization, right? Right. So what, in your words, what is 8th Blackbird exactly? And how did you evolve from a chamber ensemble to an all-encompassing entity? Well, I think, you know, that change kind of happens slowly over time. And, you know, you don't always notice it happening, um, you know, the evolution of things, right? So I think one of the first big sort of indicators that we were kind of just sort of shifting to being just a sextet um, was you know, our real interest in education and kind of mentoring the next generation of musicians, um, for lack mm -hmm. of a better term. And part of that came from, you know, being asked to come be ensemble in residence at various festivals, um, often during the summer, uh, you know, over the course of our careers and, and really liking, you know, being a part of those festivals, but also feeling like, oh, oh, I wish this component of this festival was a little bit different, or I, this, I wish this festival had a component from this other festival. And, you know, why we should just make something ourselves. Like that would be ideal, right? Like we, we wanted to just kind of make the sort of methodology and the curriculum for what we felt was the training for a young, you know, musician. And so that, was really how the idea for our Blackbird Creative Lab program came about. And, you know, we spent, I, I, I think we spent five years kind of working on what this would be. And finally, we were able to launch it in 2017. And we did the whole lab um, program in 2017 and also in 2018. And then we ran into some kind of funding hurdles um, but we're looking like we're going to relaunch it now in 2023 in the summer, which I'm really excited about. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think that, you know, to answer your question, Adam, it's, it's sort of, in a way, when you're first starting out, you want to perform and you want to put yourself out there. And that's awesome. And that's what we were doing. But then, you know, there came like this kind of turning point where it was like, well, what are we just going to do this forever? Like, is that the only thing that we're going to focus on? And for us, I think some people do decide to do that. And, and that's perfectly fine, you know, but for us, I think we really were thinking about like, how can we kind of teach what we've learned to other people so that they can go out in the world and have a career and, and forge their own careers, like not just necessarily have a career as an orchestral musician or a career as a soloist, but like, how can we help them be, you know, entrepreneurial? And you realize that, you know, it becomes so much less about yourself and more about, you know, other others. Blackbird launched the Chicago Artists Workshop to use your platform and infrastructure to support and showcase other artists while also providing a space to explore what online performance will mean as we move move beyond this pesky little pandemic, which is still ongoing. <laughs> In other words, when the incentive was to look inward and focus on survival, 8th Blackbird was maintaining the mission to move music forward. What have you and the organization learned from the Chicago Artist Workshop? And what are some of the trends that are beginning to develop? How should we as artists be thinking about the post-pandemic world in thinking of all these things? I mean, I think to sort of, for us in kind of pivoting to start, you know, streaming and doing this digital series, uh, it was really, uh, you know, as I reflect back on it, I think it was just kind of a way to survive. And I don't just mean like, you know, sort of financially, it wasn't about that. I mean, more about like artistically in terms mm -hmm. of like, it was, it's been really hard to not do what I'm so used to doing, which is to just like, learn music, perform music, learn music, perform music, go on tour, come home, go on tour, come home, you know? And so to have these, these, you know, Chicago Artist Workshop concerts that we, you know, produced and brought just like a really diverse array of kinds of artists into our studio for, it really saved me in a lot of ways. Uh, we collaborated with many of the artists, I, I think probably more than, definitely more than half, maybe more than 75% of them, um, which actually wasn't the initial plan, but it just kind mm -hmm. of ended up happening that way because it was like, fun for us and we had the time to do it you know um so I, I, I it was it was exhausting too it was like a lot of a lot of work um and so I'm so glad that that we're doing it I don't know the post-pandemic world is just gonna take a while to continue 
you know, for things to get back to sort of the way they were before. And do you think the need for us to keep performing and to be out mm-hmm. there is really important, you know, not just for, um, for us as artists in terms of what we do, but also, you know, for audiences going out to experience uh, work, you know, that, that is crucial for people who just live in society. Like it's art is yeah. necessary. Oh yeah. I, and that's been a game changer for for me because my parents over in Europe can watch it it's, and they'll stay up until two, three in the morning to watch me do a show with their cup of tea. And Aww. they wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise. So there, there are like, there are perks that came out of this pandemic. People, yes. I know there's not many, but there are a few. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I agree. And I think that that, that creation of work to be for an online audience has also created some sense of um engagement that you didn't wouldn't necessarily have like at a live show in in terms of and I mean more like engaging with the artist in a personal way right you know they'll there'll be a little zoom chat like after after a digital show and people ask questions and interact with you know the artists in a way that maybe they just weren't able to at at a live show um you know that said I think it is very different feel um, it doesn't have like the kind of energy that a live show has, at, at least for me. Um, but I'm, I'm really glad that we, that we are doing it. Um, and it definitely kind of saved, saved me, um, you know, especially during the lowest points, you know, of, of this pandemic. Well, one of your other initiatives, Blackbird Productions, uh, features collaborative projects that blend a variety of artistic perspectives and social issues into the work that you do as an ensemble. Um, and, you know, one project in particular that I was taken by is This Is My Home, uh, which takes your arrangement of Irving Berlin's God Bless America and really examines how perspectives on this particular song reveal the contemporary American tension between inclusion and exclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about the background of some of these projects and how you how you even get these ideas and and how you bring them to fruition. So uh, I just will give credit to my friend and colleague, Matthew Duvall, who's our percussionist and artistic director um, for the This Is My Home project. Um, And that, uh, again, that's something we had talked about for years and we're just like never able to kind of like pull off until, you know, finally we did it. You know, that that came from actually Matthew had seen, I think it was a musical or a play. It was a, a theater piece all about the life of Irving Berlin, who has a fascinating mm-hmm. history. You know, that song, you know, the, the God Bless America was really people don't remember the context in which that was written. Right. And his parents were Russian immigrant Jews. Irving Berlin was born here, but then, you know, he really wrote that song to be like, you know, God bless America, because this, this country like gave me a chance, right? But that song has been in some ways like co-opted by the conservative right, you know, to, to really make it, make it feel completely different and, and, and like religious in meaning, right? Which it it is Mm -hmm. not. Um, And so Matthew had always had this kind of vision of like, you know, this song is so amazing and we, we need it to sort of find its original context again. And how, how great to do that in a way, I don't know, like before the election, which, you yeah. know, was obviously so fraught. And I think just the notion of home is really 
so fraught too, just as you say, in terms of inclusion and exclusion, we wanted to explore that, you know, and so we tried to just get a variety of viewpoints, you know, from friends and collaborators of ours uh, to express that. I think we, we, we made five videos, which we were very proud of. And, you know, originally Matthew was like, had a list of, we're going to make 20 of these, you know, and I mean, I think we could have if we'd had the time, right. You know, but, yes. but certainly, yeah. you know, the, I, the idea was make people contemplate, like, what is your idea of home? What makes a home feel like a home? It has, there's a, obviously many, many layers of meaning, but I guess to answer the question, you know, that idea came you know, came to Matthews pretty specifically a long time ago. And to find the space and time to create it was actually just something that happened during the pandemic. To me, it actually, uh, that brings to, I, I know I've mentioned this word to Adam before, but there is a Welsh word, hedaeth, uh, which means to literally yearn for or miss your homeland. And kind of there's a similarity there of like, you can miss your homeland, but perhaps it's not the same as what it was before. Perhaps things have changed. And I think that's just, I think it's a really beautiful thing to look at because this country is very different things for different people. Right. I remember one of our friends who did a This Is My Home is um, Kareem Suleiman, wonderful tenor mm. and Lebanese American. So his parents, you know, are Lebanese and they had gone back to Lebanon because they expected to be able to live there, you know, after they did their um, university, which they did in the States. And, you know, there was the war. I mean, it was just like, they could not live there. They came back here, like Kareem and his brother were, you know, raised here. Kareem has like a very kind of fraught relationship to, to being here. And it's like, does he yeah. love it? No. Does he hate it? Sometimes. Is it home? Yes. Blackbird's early career really seemed to take off after your 1996 win of the Fishhoff competition, mm. followed by the Concert Artists Guild in 1998. What roles do you feel that these competitions have played in fostering success for the laureates? Yeah, I mean, I think in this case, the competitions were really uh, helpful to us in, in serving as kind of launching pads. In, in the case of Eighth Blackbird, they really did because we were also something different than a string quartet at the time. Mm -hmm. We kind of won those. We were, we were a, a contemporary music sextet and there was like not, a, not really any touring ensembles like that at the time. There was, of, of course. course, you know, there's like speculum music, there's New York music ensemble, but those, those groups are more localized to where they're based. They're, they don't really tour. And so it was like, we were very different. And um, I think it was after our Concert Artist Guild um, sort of New York debut at Merkin Hall that Alan Cozen gave us a, you know, really wonderful New York Times review. And that was huge. You know, the, those, those things at the right time, I think, can really help you. And I think for us as a group, 
the competitions gave us something to prepare towards. We weren't, we didn't have like long-term vision other than like a year or two down the road at that time, right? There wasn't like, what will we be doing in 10 years? You know, um, <laughs> it was like, how are we, what are we doing next year? You know, and so, yeah. you know, that if Blackbird kind of stayed together in such a way as to just, we basically made small commitments to each other over, a, you know, what's turned out to be a long, long time. And I think that those kind of anchors of like deciding to kind of do a competition, learn rep, really learn the rep, you know, and, and go and do the best you can. Like those were, were pivotal points for, for us. Um, mm. I don't know that they are for everybody, uh, but in the case of where the climate of music was at the time uh, and, you know, sort of where we were within that, they played a part for sure. Your team now includes several administrative roles beyond the players in your ensemble. Could you talk about when 8th Blackbird transitioned to a full-scale operation beyond the members of the ensemble? And when was it clear that this transition would better serve the needs? It's hard to remember now exactly, but I believe we were like 12 years into our career before we hired an outside person. You know, other than we had like an agent, right? And I remember that we all just felt totally overwhelmed. All of sort of our preparation in terms of what we're, what we're doing for performing and what we're doing to run this as an organization feels completely like we are fish out of water and have, yeah. are unable to do both of those things. Somebody finally was like, we need to hire someone. <laughs> I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, we do. We hired a managing director. Our current structure is we have, you know, executive director, artistic director, an operations director, a uh, financial director, and a social media um, communications director. And um, it's a lot, but it's also like, I can't imagine doing, doing it all, you know, ourselves. It's just, it's just too much. And you need you need somebody else to sort of just have a stake in all the operations of the organization so that, you know, somebody is making sure that, that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing too. <laughs> I think learning skills along the way that help you is great, but then having other people come in who know who you can learn from and know more than you do is even better. How do you integrate internships into your administrative process? And um, specifically, I'm wondering, do you often approach internships by trying to fill an ensemble need or do you identify an intern and mold that internship to their particular qualifications and interests? I think both have happened. I mean, I would say we always try to play to who's ever working for us strengths because that's just how you get the best out of like anybody, I think. And I'm, I'm actually thinking of um, Justin Peters, who works for us, who's our operations director now. He, he came to us, um, I think this is his sixth year with us. So he was like 22 or 23 when we first hired him, not as an intern, but uh, honestly, I can't even think of what his original title was, but he worked for us just like a part-time. And we hired him partly because he was he's a percussionist himself and we needed help. Like Matthew just needed a lot of help with percussion setups and like somebody other than him that knew about percussion was going to be really useful. And, you know, and it's just turned out that Justin has been like an amazing employee for a lot of other reasons, but sort of initially it was like, 
um, you know, he was organized. He was just really had great qualifications, but also he, he was a percussionist and that was, you know, so I don't know, we, we've done both, you know, we've, we've really sort of like found somebody that we felt like was the right fit for the job. And then had somebody come to us that were like, great, these are your strengths. You do that. We need that right now. Um, and, you know, often we have interns from like our alumni, alumni programs that, you know, from Oberlin or Eastman or, and, and that's, that's worked out really well. And that has been a, a, just a little bit less um, frequent since the pandemic started. Um, but normally we would have like a summer intern and then fall intern and um, it hasn't quite regularized um, since, since the pandemic began, but th that's kind of uh, how it works for us generally. In 2015, 8th Blackbird served as artist in residence at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. Could you tell us what your favorite project was that you undertook as part of this residency? Oh, wow. I've never thought about it in relation to like a favorite project in general. You know, it was so amazing to be more able to step outside ourselves and kind of objectively see what a person in the museum who stops by and just like listens to a rehearsal might see. You know, I think you get so like you're rehearsing, you know, every day and you're like in your studio and, it, and nobody's observing you, right? And you just, you just do your thing and you're really efficient. But then somehow when you're like doing that publicly, like every day rehearsing and people drop in and listen, and, and their reaction is like, wow, this is so interesting, so cool, like how you guys like communicate and even like communicate in nonverbal ways, right? I think I was able to gain a perspective again of like what that was like by publicly rehearsing that way. And um, I know that sounds strange, but I think you it's it's really easy to sort of get lost in what you what you do and just feel like, okay, this rehearsing is a process, it's a process, it's a process. And we just do that, you know, so that we're ready for the performance. And that's all true, but actually it's really freaking interesting to other people to see that process. And, and when I think about it now, it's like, it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I've always been a person that is interested in process. I've just always thought mm -hmm. my own process is kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but in fact, it's it's actually not. And I I don't know. I maybe this is too like meta in a way. But I but it's um that part of being at the MCA for that residency was super super interesting for for me personally. And I think as a group too, it was really like you're able to sort of see like oh this is this is why people you know want to come and sit in on rehearsals because what we're doing is really really cool. And it's not just about the end product. I think classical musicians in particular get so focused on the performance and like everything is about the performance. But in a way, like that is the thing 
that you are working towards. And yes, maybe that's the thing that is like an end product. But for me, after doing that residency at the MCA, I became much more understanding that the process was a part of what was really important too. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know if that makes sense the way I maybe didn't articulate it so well, but, um, but that, that was really kind of eye-opening to me. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, personally, I, I agree with that. I, in fact, I love the rehearsal process yeah maybe more than the performance itself right right yeah just because it's the the constant exploration and just living inside an idea um rather than once you get to the performance it's about the execution right know? and the performance is also just a snapshot the performance exactly. is just a right. snapshot of where you are in that particular moment and maybe someone in the group has an itchy nose or maybe someone's had some unfortunate news from home that their dog's sick or something like yeah. it's it's one of those like it's that's only ever a snapshot but putting it together is sort of where all the magic happens so a fun thing to finish off with if you could put together any dream project what would it be oh gosh i have so many dream projects <laughs> uh, yeah you know one of the things that we've done that's pretty unique to us is create these productions um of pieces that I feel like are hard to put in any kind of genre, right? And we did this amazing project with Amy Beth Kirsten and she wrote, I, I like, I don't even know what to call it. It was, I mean, it's called Columbine's Paradise Theater and it was like mm -hmm. a show, you know, but it was like, I don't know. It was like super chamber music. It was like a theater piece. It was, and, and I remember seeing um, the Sweeney Todd in which, um, all of the um, actors and actresses, you know, also played the music for the show. Yep. And I remember being like, I want to do that. You know, not- I love right, that like, production. I love that production. It's, it's amazing. And so, so like, I don't, you know, it's not a specific of like, who do I want to work with? But like, I want to do that kind of piece yeah. with the right, you know, people and collaborators, you know, as, you know, eighth Blackbird. I, I, I think that that would be, kind of you know take it all even to like the next level so we have come to the end of this incredibly enlightening and just gosh darn delightful interview with the amazing lisa kaplan from eighth blackbird thank you so much for joining us today for this just uh such a fun conversation i'm just grinning ear to ear <laughs> uh which just makes me so happy when we've had interviews and we will obviously pop all of your socials and your website and everything down in the show notes so please go and check out this brilliant brilliant group and if you are ever in chicago or anywhere anywhere that they are playing or streaming we definitely recommend that you check out this wonderful group Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast and on Twitter at SWChamberCast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cornell. 
Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by David Lang and Ollie Lewin and performed by Lisa Kaplan. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks. <laughs>